We'll get started tonight. We are on uh, part four of our new series, What Will You Say? So as uh, everybody gets a chance to grab the handout, there'll be a lot of information tonight. So uh, I tried to keep it two pages, so you may want to make some notes and everything. Uh, extra on the side because we're going to go through a lot of information tonight, uh, but hopefully it'll be very helpful for you as uh, as we continue this study. So as everybody continues to grab their handouts, let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll get started here tonight on part four. All right, let's pray. God, we bow before you tonight. God, we are uh, thankful for this opportunity that you put before us here. Uh, God, thank you for the people in this room who are eager to hear from you. And uh, Lord, we just confess tonight that we need a word from you. Uh, God, with everything that's going on, God, we want to commit this next hour, uh, Lord, just to sitting before your word and uh, God, to hear from you, uh, God, to understand what you'd have for us to hear and God, courage to apply it. And so tonight, as we look at your word and uh, the history of your word, God, that you would speak to us, uh, God, that you would encourage us. And, God, that you would use this, God, for the edification of your kingdom and your church, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so we're in part four of What Will You Say? And so it's kind of an apologetic series that we've been going through uh, to help us to think through what is it that we believe? Why do we believe what we believe? And, uh, and put some some substance to what it is that we believe. And so as we were, uh, Pastor Tony and I were talking about, uh, you know, the study and what we were going through, we were talking about some of the topics that we had discussed. And I said, you know, when we talk about truth, one of the things that, you know, if you were to be asked, well, what do you believe? Well, you probably have a belief system, uh, a worldview, if you will, of some of the things that uh, you're convicted of and that you follow. Well, if you are asked, why do you believe that? Sometimes you may struggle to answer that. And so that's been the whole part, uh, the primary purpose of this series is just to say, all right, well, here's some nuts and bolts into the why. And so tonight uh, we're going to look at absolute truth, specifically the Word of God, and, and talk about some different things. So we're going to answer the question tonight, where did the Bible come from? I don't know if you know that answer. Hopefully tonight you'll leave with the answer. Uh, how did they choose which books to go in the Bible? So if someone, if you say, well, uh, you know, I find truth in Scripture. And so, you know, the way that I measure things is through the Word of God. And they say, well, why do you believe the Word of God? And you say, well, because I'm supposed to. Well, tonight you're going to have some nuts and bolts to say, well, this is why and this is what happened and this is how. And so you're going to be able to put all that together. So again, I tried to give you as much information as possible, but not overwhelm it. And so uh, you may want to fill in the blanks on some of those uh, between the lines because there'll be a lot of information that we'll talk about tonight. So as we get started tonight, the world in which we live has become increasingly more and more untrustworthy. Would you not agree with that? I mean, everywhere you turn, someone has a new answer for something. 
Uh, you think about uh, the different things that have come and gone over the years. I was talking to somebody the other day, and they brought up the fact that you used to could use buffering for headaches. Anybody ever remember the pain medicine? Yeah, you, you could use that for headaches. Well, now you can't get that anywhere. And so, well, does it not work now? Or, you know, what happened to it? Where did it go? And the things that used to be trustworthy years ago or the things that were your go-to, well, they're not so much the same anymore. Now, you know, as things change, it seems to be that the goalpost of truth has changed. We see that the concept of truth has been so diluted in our world today, it's hard to know what is true and what isn't. I mean, you look around at all the things that are promoted before us today, and it's hard to really know, well, who is telling the truth? I mean, think about all the things that have happened just in the last six months. Everything in our world has changed, and yet nothing has changed. Think about it. Everything, absolutely everything has changed, and yet absolutely nothing has changed. So, for instance, in the last six months, first... Masks are not helpful. You should not wear a mask. The Today Show did a one-hour special about how ineffective masks are, and you shouldn't wear a mask. And yet, on what, July 13th, they were mandated. You have to wear them. Now, I'm not saying you should or you shouldn't. I'm not getting into that conversation tonight. I'm just saying everything has become one way, and then it's all of a sudden another. First, if you remember when the coronavirus came out, we had to stop. We shut down factories to begin manufacturing more ventilators because we were going to run out of ventilators. Remember that? And there's no way that we're going to survive unless we have more ventilators. And now they don't even use ventilators. But yet we still have corona. First it was, it's airborne. You can't go outside. Now it's not. First, it was you should wash your groceries when you bring them home. I remember getting packages from Amazon, and we would scrub them down and set them out in the sun. Anybody confess that you did the same thing? Right? And then all of a sudden, you know what? It's, it's okay. It actually doesn't exist on surfaces anymore. Then we were on lockdown. Now we're not on lockdown. And yet, and yet, nothing has changed. There is no cure. There is no vaccine. Nothing has changed. But yet everything has changed. Now, now, I'm not saying, you know, I'm not trying to get into a political debate with you or, you know, a mask versus no mask. That's not my point. My point is this, is that every time someone gets on television and promotes some new whatever, it becomes truth, seemingly, right? And this is what we have to do, and you absolutely must do this. And so our world today has become so skeptical of anything that no one really believes anybody anymore, right? Everything has become very subjective. And we say, well, I don't know if I believe that. Well, that's what you believe, and it's okay for you to believe that. Well, there has to be one absolute truth, right? There has to be. I mean, how in the world did we exist for over 2,000 years past Jesus, and yet everything is subjective? It's not subjective. In such a world that we live in, how do we navigate truth and trust how do we navigate trust? You know, one of the really, really good things that I think about, and we, we talk about this a lot, one of the really good things that I think that has happened that is really a golden ticket for you and for me is 
the, the fact that we have gone primarily digital on everything that we do. This the services tonight will be recorded services on Sunday morning or always uh, our video broadcast now. And so if by chance you can't make it, uh, you can watch it on video. You can pull it up and see it live. Now, what has that done? That has pulled back the curtain of church. I mean, think about it. There's tons of churches that you've passed coming here tonight, and you've never been to those churches, and you may never go to those churches. And the primary reason that you probably never go to one of those churches is I have no idea what they do in there, right? I don't know what happened. Imagine if you're an unbeliever and you've never been to church, and then all of a sudden someone invites you. There's this uncertainty about, well, what are you doing there? And how, well, all of a sudden now, guess what? The curtains pull back. And so if you want to invite somebody to church, here's what I would encourage you to do. I would say, hey, we'd love for you to come to our church, but you should check us out first. On Sunday mornings at 1045, we live stream our service. You should watch it, right? Because what you're doing is you're saying, look, here's what we're doing on Sunday mornings, and I'd love for you to be a part of that. And so it's pulled back the curtain of what's going on inside specifically our church, but the church in general. I mean, there's, most churches are doing that. And so the question that the world is asking today is, well, who can I trust? What is truth? Now, as believers, you and I, what we would say is we'd say, well, I believe the Bible. The Bible is truth. And so, of course, we as Christians believe the Bible. But this study is about the questions that non-believers would ask, right? What will you say? And so how will you respond when your faith is challenged? And so the questions that we want to talk about tonight is what questions do they have about truth as you and me and they all swim in a sea of misinformation. So the question the world is asking today is, what is truth? What is truth? So if someone were to ask you, well, where do you get your truth? How do you decide what is real and what is not? What do you say? You see, Jesus said in John 17, 17, he said, sanctify them by your word, and then he followed that up by saying, your word is truth. And so for us as believers, we've come to know that the things that Jesus said are true, not just because he said them, but because he followed through with them. And any student of the Bible, if you spend any amount of time reading the Old Testament, we'll get into it in a minute, uh, and you see all the things that they said, the prophets said would happen in the Old Testament, they happened. And so credibility begins to build when you do what you say. And so as believers, we ought to be the very first people to do what we say. We ought to be the most credible people on earth because we're not out self-promoting and we're not out, uh, you know, saying things that aren't true, but that we're out doing what we say. Now, for some people, that may be you may have to start doing less things, <laughs> until you can start doing what you say you will do. Because that's what the world wants today, is they want truth. Everybody wants someone to follow. Everybody. And why not follow the greatest person ever, Jesus Christ, right? And so we need to lead people through truth, by truth, to the truth. And so if the Word of God is the absolute truth today, and we're going to build that case tonight, how do we convey its validity in the world today? How do we do that? So if someone says, why do you believe that the Bible is absolute truth? How can you trust the Bible? That's ultimately the question we're going to answer here tonight. And so as we get started, the Bible, well, the Bible was written, let's see if we're going to get help tonight. 
All right, so the Bible was written over a 1,500-year span of time. And so as we go back and look at Scripture, and we see uh, the oldest uh, writings of Scripture uh, to the most recent, which is uh, the New Testament, of course, the latter part of uh, the first century, so close to 100 A.D. It's about a 1,500-year time span in which the Scriptures were written. Now, this was written over 40 different generations, over 40 different generations, by 40, over 40 different authors who penned the inspired Word of God It was written from three separate continents, so from Asia, from Africa, and from Europe, we see uh, the totality of Scripture was written. It was written in three different languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. And of all of that, so three continents, three languages, over 40 authors, over 40 generations, over 1,500 years of time, and yet, and yet, in all of that, there are hundreds of controversial topics that exist in absolute and complete harmony. Now, if you've ever been to a Baptist business meeting, you can't get 50 people to be in complete harmony sometimes, right? And over 1,500 years and 40 different authors that were not at the same place, not at the same time, and yet in complete harmony, they all agree with each other. It's estimated that there have been over 5 billion copies of the Word of God that have been sold to date. Over 5 billion copies. So if we think about the way the Scriptures were written, how they were formulated, and we think about all of the people that have purchased a Bible, well, how in the world did they decide, who decided, what mantra or what metric did they use to decide, well, what book should be in Scripture? Why should we, why should we believe Isaiah? Why should we trust Matthew, right? How did they decide that? And so I'm going to give you some information uh, as we get into this. So there were five different tests that were given, or a litmus test, if you will, that a book had to pass before it could be added to the Bible. Now, I want you to apply this as we're, of course, talking about the Word of God, but I want you to think about this as it applies to anything else. Think about it as it applies to uh, what you may hear on the television. Think about it as it, this would be a great litmus test for you to discern whether or not truth is truth. And so this is how it was decided of whether or not a book should be included in the Bible. Number one, the, qu the first question is, is it authoritative? Is it authoritative? Did it come from the hand of God? So does it have the authority from the creator of the universe? Now, we know that the Scripture teaches that, right? 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all Scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and for training in righteousness. We know that. Paul wrote to Timothy, God breathed all of Scripture. So Scripture confirms, certainly uh, projects the fact that it is authoritative. 
So let's think about it from a non-biblical perspective then. How can we say that, yeah, absolutely, the Word of God is authoritative. It came from the hand of God. Well, let me ask you a question. There is no other book, there is no other book in which we have the origin of life. So what other book would you use to know how man was created and how the heavens and the earth were created and where did animals come from? What other book would you use for that? Well, is it authoritative? Well, the only way it could be written about creation is someone would have to be there to talk about the creation that took place, right? Only God is capable of doing that. And so if Harry Potter's author were to come out and say, I'm going to write a book on creation, well, guess what? It might be fun to read, but it's not going to be authoritative because she wasn't there, right? And so as we talk about the origin of life, every detail of creation is chronicled in Genesis. Where did man come from? Where did light come from? Where did animals come from? Where did plants come from? How did all of that work together? There's no other book that offers any other valid explanation. Number two, not only does it detail the origin of life, the history of humanity is chronicled in the Word of God, and it is with historical inerrancy. Now, there's, I didn't want to flood you with information, but there are so many places in Scripture, uh, both Old Testament and New, where prophecies were given of things that would happen. For instance, the, uh, the city of Babylon, the indestructible, in, impenetrable city of Babylon. And yet, it was prophesied that the city of Babylon not only would be destroyed, but would forever be uninhabited. In which the people who lived in that day completely could say, well, there's no way that's possible. It would be like us saying today that the city of New York would uh, in 10, 20, 50 years uh, become completely uninhabitable and no one would ever live there ever again. No one would believe that. And so there's so many prophecies that detail the history of what took place with humanity. And it is in such, we'll get to in a second, but in such linear fashion. It talks about from, again, creation all the way through how the exodus of the Israelites and how uh, humanity began to grow and to expand until we get to all the way to the end of Revelation where, where the Word of God tells us that how the world will end. And so we see all of the history of humanity, and yet it is without error. Even the Bible, even the Bible says not to believe something that claims to do one thing and yet does another. Write this verse down, Deuteronomy 18, 21 and 22. It says, uh, Deuteronomy 18, 21 and 22. If you say in your heart, how may we know that the word uh, that the Lord has not spoken? How may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. Very simple test, right? If they say it's going to happen and it doesn't happen, then it wasn't true. I remember in May of 2011, I was pastoring a church in Virginia. And uh, Harry Campo had his own uh, television show, uh, radio show. And uh, he was a prophetic guy. And he came out and said, the Mayan calendar is absolutely right. And on May, the whatever, the world is going to end. Y'all remember that? May 2011. 
And so May 2011 came and everybody just like Y2K was, hey, is this guy right? What's going on? Does he know something we don't? Did he crack the code? And then guess what happened? June of 2011 came. Yikes. Credibility goes down the drain, right? And yet he came out and he said, I was wrong. I miscalculated. It's actually November. This is, you go back and look. It's true. It happened. He came out and he said, you know what? I was wrong. It's actually November. It's going to be November of this year that the world's going to end. And so November came and then December came. And unfortunately, he passed away. And yet we're still here. Right? And so the litmus test is very simple. If you say, the Bible says, if a prophet says this is going to happen and it doesn't happen, then it's not true. He says, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not to be afraid of him. So when we talk about the inerrancy of Scripture, Scripture said, here's what's going to happen, and then it happened. So, again, based on Scripture's interpretation of believing anything that says to be true, and yet it's not, it is without error. So, number three, the opportunity for redemption. What other Bible, what other book, what other writing, fill in the blank, has the plan for humanity to be redeemed? How, how does mankind reach God? Now, there's a lot of other theories, and we'll get to those in a second. But what is the plan for redemption? How can one person come to know Jesus Christ? How else would you know Jesus? I mean, think about this. When we studied the book of John, Thomas asked the question, Lord, how will we know where you're going? John chapter 14. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes from the Father but through me. Had Thomas not asked that question, where would we be today? And yet Thomas asked Jesus, how do we go where you're going? And Scripture, because we have the Word of God, details exactly how we go to where God the Father is. You see, Jesus made claims that no one else has made and fulfilled. You see, Jesus is different than everyone else when it comes to what He said in Scripture. Jesus kept pointing people to Himself. Jesus said what? He said, come unto me and I will give you rest. Yet Buddha said, look not to me, look to my doctrine, or don't do as I do, do as I say. Buddha also said, uh, be lamps unto yourself. Yet Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Buddha, Confucius, Muhammad, other religious founders, they performed no miracles. None of them rose from the dead. And yet Jesus offered many miracles and his resurrection as evidence for his divinity. As a matter of fact, what did he say in Scripture before he died? I'm going to die. I'm going to be dead for three days. In three days, I'm going to rise from the grave, right? In three days, I will rise this body up. Is that not what he said? And so everything that Jesus said came to pass. The divinity of Jesus Christ is the most distinctively Christian doctrine of all of the doctrines. A Christian is most essentially defined as one who believes in the divinity of Jesus. It's not enough to believe, and most people do, that Jesus was a good man. It's not enough to believe that Jesus was a prophet. It is imperative 
that you must believe that Jesus was the Son of God. You see, the doctrine of the divinity of Jesus is like a skeleton key, and it unlocks all the other doctrinal doors of Christianity. He was the one who taught with divine authority. And so when we talk about the opportunity for redemption, the Bible is the only writing that not only speaks of the opportunity uh, for redemption, but offers the one who gives us the opportunity for redemption. You see, since Jesus was absolutely God, when he died on the cross, he opened up for us the first opportunity that we had to be right with God, the only opportunity that we have to be right with God. No event in history could be more important than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, the Word of God prophesied that a Messiah would come hundreds of years before he actually came. The Word of God in the Old Testament prophesied where he would be born, how he would die, even to the number of bones that would be broken at his death, which is zero. And they prophesied that he would rise again, and yet every one of those things happened. So again, based on the metric of what Scripture says is, if they say it's going to happen and it doesn't happen, it's not true. If he says it's going to happen and it does happen, then in fact, it's true. So we see the opportunity for redemption. And number four, we see how the world will end. We talk about in my house, you know, I'm a teenager and 11-year-old, and so lots of good questions. And uh, so they ask questions about, you know, lots of things and how's the world going to end and, you know, what, are the, what if the laws change and all these different things that, you know, good questions that they ask. And so we talk about a lot of different things. Well, I don't know the answer to all questions. And I don't know everything that the Bible says about the end times. But I do know this, that those that are with Jesus, that are counted because of the blood of Jesus, will survive to the very end. I know those, the Bible says that we survive by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. And the word of our testimony is what? It's what Jesus did. And so wherever Jesus goes, just like Thomas and the disciples are, I'm with him, that's where I'm going. That's where you want to go. And so as we talk about how the world will end, well, there's been over 2,000 different prophecies that have been fulfilled. And so when we read Daniel and we read Elijah or Ezekiel and we read uh, Revelation and we see all the prophetical end time prophecies, we can believe those things. Why do we believe that? Not because we want to or not because it, you know, it sounds fantastical. No, we believe those things because the Bible has proven to be trustworthy based on the things that have already been fulfilled. So the first question that we answer here as we talk about Scripture and the five tests, number one, is it authoritative? Is it authoritative? The second question that they asked before they included a book in the Bible is, is it prophetic? Or in other words, was it written by a man of God? Is it prophetic? The New Testament, every single letter, book, whatever you want to call it in the New Testament, was written by someone who had a personal encounter with Jesus 
or related the personal encounter with Jesus. The entire New Testament. I mean, think about it. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, right? The Gospels. <clears throat> These are people who had an experience. John was the beloved disciple that Jesus loved. Matthew was the tax collector. Luke was the physician, right? These are people who had experiences, personal knowledge of what Jesus did. I mean, think about this. One of, the, one of the proofs of the resurrection is that people will not die for a lie. People won't die for a lie. Think about all of the things that the disciples encountered. And one of the, one of the uh, you know, there's a lot of different theories for the resurrection, but one of them is, you know, the, the swoon theory where Jesus didn't really die, which, you know, is not true. Uh, but that's a theory, or uh, that the disciples stole the body. That's a, that's a theory that's used oftentimes, that the disciples stole the body. Well, let's just say that's true, okay? Let's just say it's true. It's not, but let's say it is. So they stole the body of Jesus. And all 11 of them, both their families and themselves, chose to die a martyr's death for something that was not true. If, if they stole the body of Jesus and Jesus didn't really rise from the grave, do you think that they would give their lives and allow their families to be sacrificed for something that wasn't true? Now, true, granted, I know what you're thinking. You say, well, what about the erroneous beliefs that people have, and, you know, like the people who flew into the World Trade Center? And well, they believe what they, what they did was truth, right? Yeah, they did believe that. They believed it was truth. They didn't believe it was a lie. There is no one who, who does things like that who does it knowing in their minds that it's not true. They do it because they absolutely believe that it's true. Why was Peter crucified upside down by uh, oral tradition? Or why, why were all the disciples martyred? Because they absolutely believed what Jesus said was true. And they, with their own eyes in the upper room, along with 500 other people, witnessed the resurrected Jesus. That'd be a good place for you to say amen, right? They, they believe that it was true. Why do you show up on Wednesday nights? Why do you have the worldview that you have? Why do you spend time in Scripture reading and prayer during the week? Why do you adhere to certain uh, belief systems that cause you to act a certain way? Why do you do that? Because you believe that what Jesus said is absolutely true, right? That's, that's the only reason. You'd be crazy if you didn't do it for any other reason. And so the, as we talk about, well, was it written by a man of God? If we look at all of the things that took place in the New Testament, every single letter that was scribed in the New Testament was written by someone who said, I put my eyes on Jesus. When Paul writes, you know, over half of the New Testament, he was on the road to Damascus. He had a personal encounter with Jesus. And so is it authoritative? It better be from God. Number two, is it prophetic? Did someone write this that was a man of God? That was the second litmus test. Number three is, is it authentic? Is it authentic? Now, I mentioned this a few weeks ago, so I won't spend a lot of time here, but there's over 24,000 copies of manuscripts of the New Testament alone. So in 70 A.D., Jerusalem was destroyed, as was prophesied. Uh, all of the originals were destroyed, uh, but copies were made. And they would write, they would scribe out copies. It would take, I think I read, a, a month and a half for them to make a copy as they would write out all of the different Scripture copies. And so uh, over 24,000 different fragments 
have been found of the copies of the manuscripts of the New Testament. 24, that's a lot. The second closest is 600. I mentioned this a few weeks ago. The New Testament, which was written as late as 100 A.D., the New Testament written as late as, uh, as late as 100 A.D., and the earliest dated manuscript copy that we have is 125 A.D. So the way it's put in, you know, Christendom today is that in, in less than 100 years from what someone wrote to it being verified, it was discovered. So in other words, if I think of it this way, let's say that I, um, I wrote a story and I told a story about Tony Carnes. And let's say that I told a story about Tony Carnes that one time uh, Tony Carnes he built a house in three days. I don't know, I'm making something up. So he built a house in three days, all by himself in three days. And I wrote that, and I wrote this long story about how he did it, and then I sealed it, and I buried it. And 200 years later, someone found it. Who's going to dispute that story? No one. Why are they not going to dispute that story? Because they're not alive. No one lives 200 years. Okay? Let's say, same scenario, Tony Carnes built a house in three days all by himself. I write the story out. I seal it. I bury it in the ground. And 25 years later, Jamie finds it. And he says, this is not true. I went to high school with Tony. And, you know, during this time that you said he did that, Tony wasn't uh, building houses. He was growing a mullet. That's not what was going on. Right? Somebody's alive and they can dispute it. it. The same thing applies to the resurrection of Jesus. I know we're not talking about that tonight, but the same thing applies. So Jesus on the cross looked at John and he said, take care of my mother. And so it's believed that uh, Mary lived outside of the city of Jerusalem. Okay? And so all of this time, Jesus rose from the grave, Acts 1-8, he ascended into heaven. So all of this time, the mother of Jesus is living outside the city of Jerusalem. Paul has this encounter. Paul has this encounter with Jesus, right? And then he spends 10, 13 years uh, in Samaria. He comes back to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15, and he says, here's all the things that I've been talking about and telling people about Jesus. And James is there, and, and John is there. James, the half-brother of Jesus, is there. He's the pastor of the church at Jerusalem. Uh, Peter's there. John is there, and they have this all discussion. Okay, what are you preaching? Okay, that's what I'm preaching. What are you preaching? That's what I'm preaching. And so they're all discussing the fact that they're preaching 1 Corinthians 15 is what Paul says, Christ and him crucified. If that is not true, Mary lives outside the city of Jerusalem. Don't you think the mother of Jesus, who absolutely would want that to be true, and yet if it weren't true, don't you think that she would walk into Jerusalem and say, look, guys, if anybody wants that to be true, it's me but it's not. Don't you think that would happen? And yet that didn't happen. Yet it didn't happen. And so as we talk about it being prophetic, we talk about it being authentic. You think about all of the proof that scripture has been given to verify itself. The next closest copy of any writing, any writing period, the next closest copy was 500 years between when it was written and when it was discovered. 500 years. Who can dispute that? 500 years. No, I mean, no one can because no one was there. 
And so, is it authentic? Is the Scripture authentic? Well, you know, one of the greatest things that God has given us was the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. You may have be familiar with that. Uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in the 1940s. And when they were discovered, prior to their discovery, our earliest copy of the Old Testament was from 900 A.D. 900 A.D. was the earliest copy. So we said, okay, well, here's what Isaiah said, and here's the account of creation in Genesis, and here's the Israelites' exodus, and, and you know, here's, we have the entire copy of it, but the first valid copy that was found was not until 900 A.D., and so there's this huge span of time between the Old Testament and the earliest copy of the Hebrew text. But when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, Inside of the discovery was an entire copy of the book of Isaiah, and it was dated 125 B.C. So in that copy, in that copy, they took the copy that was found from 125 B.C., and they compared it to the copy that they found in 900 A.D., which is over a 1,000 years of time, and yet, do you want to know how many discrepancies were, were in the difference of a thousand years? Three letters were changed. Over a thousand years, and only three letters were different in the entire copy. Now, is that not God proclaiming his truth and yet verifying it? That is mind-blowing to me. So is it authentic? Well, I think God continually, even as late as, you know, our generation in the 1940s, God's showing, no, look, here's a copy from 125 B.C. So they would ask the question, is it authentic? Number four, is it dynamic? Is it dynamic? In other words, did it come with the life-transforming power of God? Now, here is where we're going to park for a minute. Did it come with the life-transforming power of God. Now, I, I read a lot of books growing up. I love to read. Uh, I read a lot now. I remember uh, John Grisham novels. Anybody ever read John Grisham novels? I, I read most of those. Uh, I, I read uh, Matthew Christopher books when I was younger. He wrote baseball books for kids. and So I, I've read a bunch of books and, and all these different books. I've never read a John Grisham novel, and it changed my life. Never. I've never read Harry Potter, but I've never met anyone who read Harry Potter, and it changed their life. Now, I see a lot of people who are fanatics for Harry Potter, but it doesn't change your life. You see, the question is, is it dynamic? Does it have life-transforming power? So that's the question that had to be answered. Well, let's talk about what the Bible teaches about life-transforming power. You see, the Bible teaches... The Bible teaches us about a God who is personal. The Bible teaches us about a God who is personal. Every other religious system has an impersonal picture of a God who is not, uh, is not active in his creation. And yet the Bible teaches us of a God that not only is involved in his creation, he is so involved in his creation 
that about mid-history, he split time in half by embodying a human flesh and becoming the incarnation. And so, the Bible teaches the life-transforming power of God is a power that is personal. Number two, the Bible teaches about a Christ who is Savior. This is not, God didn't give us the Scriptures and say, here's all the things that you should do. Now, good luck and get out there and do them. Oh, no, I, I can't do those things, but you actually should do those things. No, Jesus came in the form of a human, and he said, not only have I told you for the last 2,000 years this is what you ought to do, now I'm going to show you what you ought to do. And he did it to be the Savior. You see, all other religions, they have teachers, they have gurus, they all lead the way to salvation, or at least proclaim to. And yet Jesus doesn't say, no, that's the way you should go for salvation. Jesus made the claim of saying, I am the way the truth, and the life. So the Bible teaches a God who is personal, a Christ who is Savior. The Bible teaches that people are of great value. Is it dynamic? Does it change? Uh, is it life transforming? Well, think about this. When you, when you are barraged with the inability to, uh, to keep the commands of God, how does that make you feel? You say, well, not good. When I consistently am told that I'm incapable of keeping the standard in which God has set forth for me, well, how does that make you feel? It doesn't make you feel very valued, right? And yet Jesus said, look, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But yet while you were sinners, Jesus died on the cross for you. And because of that, not based on your merit, but based on my great love for you, God said, I'm going to send my son and I'm going to sacrifice my son because that's how valuable you are to me. And yet in all other faith systems, the individual is not important. But yet God says, I love you so much, John 3, 16, that I will give my only son for you. So I would say that when you hear that for the first time, when you hear that for the 5,000th time, would you not agree tonight that that makes you feel pretty valuable, doesn't it? When you read Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10, and, and the, Paul says that we are Christ's workmanship, that we're his masterpiece, that makes me feel valued by God. It, it transforms our life when, when we see that God not only created us, but that he made a way for us to be with him, which shows value. Number four, we see that the Bible is uh, full of history, as I mentioned earlier, that's linear. This isn't that you do this, A, and then you do B, and then you do C, you know, like our pathway. And then, okay, now you need to start over on knowing God again. And then you need to join community. And then you need to multiply and make him known. Okay, wait, now you need, you see what I'm saying? It's not circular. History of what God has done is linear. The Bible says that his mercies are new every day. The Bible says that Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever. And so as we follow Jesus every single day, he makes our, pa our pathways straight by going before us. And it's linear, something new every day. I'm 42. I'll never be 42 again, but I haven't been 52 yet, right? And one day I'll get there because history is made to be linear. And the activity of God through the Word of God we see as God continues to work is linear. We, we talked in D group this afternoon in Ephesians. And one of the things I brought out is that Ephesians talks a lot about two things. Number one, walking. Walk, therefore, in a manner that's worthy of Christ. It doesn't say run. It doesn't say sprint. 
doesn't say sit, doesn't say crawl, walk. When you walk, everybody can walk, right? You know, you can say, well, I, don't, I can't run a mile in 10 minutes, but I can walk. Right? Walking is what? It's steady and it's consistent. But what is walking? It's in a direction. When you're walking, you're moving. You're going somewhere. So Jesus is saying, look, it's linear. It's moving. It's walking. And so as we, we see in Scripture, what God has given us is he's given us the history of where do we come from, how do we get here, and where are we going? Number six, we see through the scriptures that the Bible teaches a salvation by grace. It's not your ability. It's not my ability. Ephesians 2, 8 and 10. It's God's ability. And so it goes back to us being of great value because of the Savior who is personal. And then last but not least, we have through scripture a hope of the resurrection. 1 Thessalonians talks about the fact that we don't mourn as those who have no hope. But we have hope. Why? Because Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you, and where I go, you will be there also, right? And so for all of us that have lost loved ones, I had a friend pass away today. And for all of us that experience that, we know that this is not the end. But we know that there is a hope of the resurrection. So when we think about a God that's personal, we think about a Christ who is Savior, people that are of great value, history that's linear, a grace uh, that is given through salvation, and a resurrection that gives us hope. Does that change your life? Right? Amen? Is that not what the dynamic, transforming power of the Word of God is? I mean, I, I can tell you that I can watch the news for about three minutes, and it is gloom and doom, and all hope is lost. But I can read Psalms for three minutes, or I can read the Gospels for three minutes, or I can read the richness of Ephesians for three minutes, and I can charge hell with a water pistol. Right? And so we ought, as we think about this, as they began to go through, well, should this be included in Scripture? Is it dynamic? Does it change people's lives? All of these point to the transforming power of a God who inspired the Scripture to be authentic, prophetic, and dynamic. Last but not least, the fifth question they ask is, was it received, collected, and used? Did they read it? Did they use it? How, how proven is this? I remember I mentioned Acts 15. Paul and all the gurus of the time get together and they say, hey, what are you preaching? This is what I'm preaching. Is this true? Is this what I ought to be saying? And they're confirming truth together. That's what we do every Sunday when we gather is we're confirming truth together. And so the question that they would ask, number five, is was it received? Was there more than one person who says that this is collected, that they read it, that it was widely accepted by the people of God? Did they, I mean, there's, there's other writings that were written during that time. I, I'm sure you've read some of them. You've heard some of them. One of the most popular would probably be the Apocrypha, right? If you have Catholic background, you're probably familiar with that. Intertestamental period. Catholics have different writings, and there's middle uh, books that are included. If you ever ask that question, why? why is that not in the Bibles and the pews? Why do we not follow that? 
Why do we not believe that? Have you ever, have you ever thought about that? Anybody ever ask you that question? See, that was a question that was important when they decided in, in, the, in the councils of whether or not they would uh, include this in doctrinal scripture in the canon. Was it accepted? Is it true? Well, again, what about the Apocrypha? The Apocrypha means hidden or concealed. In the 4th century, Roman Catholics added this to the Old Testament. And it, uh, you know, purports to, to tell secrets or hidden details of the lives of Jesus and the teachings of his disciples. Fourth century, they added it, the Roman Catholics. So why is it, why is it not in your Bible? Well, when Jewish scholars convened in 90 A.D. to decide what, would to, what was to be included in the Scriptures, they did not include it. Church history did not include it for 400 years. Now, remember, we, we've already built the case of the importance of it was written, it was discovered, right? We talked about the 25 years. So for 400 years, it was not included. Roman Catholics throughout the Reformation period rejected it as Scripture, as did Martin Luther. It was not added until 1546 A.D. at the Council of Trent. So there were people that said, you know what? Jewish scholars at the time, it's not accepted. It's not widely used. It's not read. It's not to be included. It didn't pass the dynamic, the authentic, the prophetic, the authoritative test. And so they said, we're not including it. I mean, there's many other books today that proclaim to, to have validity. Religious books such as the Quran, uh, the Book of Mormon, uh, the Hindu book. All of these books today contradict the Bible. Therefore, they can't be Scripture. Remember what Jesus said. Remember what Deuteronomy said. If a prophet says it and it doesn't happen, it can't be true. And so all of these today contradict Scripture. The Quran states in two separate places that God had no son. Yet the Bible is very clear that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. The Book of Mormon says that children are not sinners. Yet the Bible teaches that children are sinful from birth. If such writings were truly from God, then such discrepancies could not exist. Because we've proven tonight that the validity of how Scripture got to where it's at and the proof of its existence and its perseverance and its accuracy, so anything that contradicts it cannot be with it. Just as Jesus said, if you're not for me, you're against me. Yet in Scripture, we see that in all of the copies of Scripture, over 99.5% of those copies are accurate from copy to copy with only letters and conjunctions making up the differences. Now, I, I thought I did pretty good in school, but I didn't graduate with a 99.5%. 99.5%, over 1,500 years, 
And yet 99.5% of every one of the copies that have ever been found have been exactly the same. Exactly the same. Word for word, thought for thought, letter for letter, even the letters and the conjunctions were only 0.5% difference. Zero of them had any theological implications for difference. Zero. That ought to give you confidence when you say, look, what this ought to cause us to do is it ought to cause us to go home tonight and say, you know what, I think I need to read a little more. It ought to cause us to wake up in the morning a little bit early and say, you know what, I probably should spend a little more time in seeing exactly what God has in store for me. You see, there's no other book, there's no other collections of books that accomplishes for man the exceeding great benefits that have been accomplished by the book of truth, the Bible. Think of all the things that you would not know were it not for the Bible. Think of all of the things that you need to know that are in the Bible. Same for me, right? It is, it is so impossible for us to know absolutely everything. I'm, this is my fourth year in D group, you as well. Uh, we'll be starting our fifth year in January. And yet every time we read through the Bible again, there's always, <clears throat> always something new that God brings out, that God reveals, that I see that God is using uh, in my life through the Scripture. You see, I want to encourage you tonight as we get here at the end. It is the Word of God that has the ability to transform. It is the Word. Jesus says, sanctify them by your truth. Your Word is truth. That's how we're sanctified is through the Word of God. You see, it was the Word of God that spoke the world into existence. It was the Word of God that caused Josiah to come to faith. It was the Word of God that gave Daniel courage for tomorrow, that caused Jonah to change his course of life, that God used, it was the Word of God that he used to reveal himself through the incarnation of his son, Jesus. It was the Word that transformed teenagers into trailblazers. It was the Word of God that changed a murderer into a missionary. It was the Word of God that caused 11 men to dedicate their lives even unto death. It is the Word of God that has and will stand the test of time and will overcome to the end based on the authority of what God's Word says in Revelation chapter 12. It is the Word of God that has brought every person from birth into knowledge of who Jesus is and the Spirit of God that has conveyed that truth to bring them to a saving knowledge of Jesus and into a, an eternal relationship with God the Father. It is only because of the Word. God has gone to such great lengths to reveal Himself through the Scriptures. And a few weeks ago, we said that apologetics is best seen before it's heard. You remember that? And so tonight as we part, and we've, I mean, I know we've talked about a lot of information tonight. You've been drinking out of a fire hydrant. I hope it was helpful for you, but I hope it encourages you to know that what you hold in your hand is absolute truth. So you can click that button on your remote and you can open up that Bible and say, okay, God, what you have for me today is just as relevant than over the 1,500 years that you wrote it. But you see, we can take all this information, and we can be so encouraged by it, 
And we can say, we have the answers. We have the absolute truth. We possess the very words of God. And yet, if we do nothing with it, if we do nothing with it, woe is me, right? And so I want to leave you tonight with just one line of application. Again, this is pure information tonight. But I want to leave you with one encouraging application. How you and I live in light of what you say you believe is all the proof that the world needs. How you live in light of what you say you believe. You say you believe this is the Word of God, then you should live like that. You say this is the precious words of Jesus, then you should treat it that way. You say that God has spoken and revealed himself through the 66 books that are written here, then you should act that way. And you and I should live that way. And we should proclaim that way. And we should reference things that way. Because if it is true of everything that we've talked about for the last 55 minutes, then we ought to live that way. And it is not the things and it's not the facts and it's not the numbers that my neighbor is going to hear and say, oh, 40 authors over 40 generations for 1,500 years? Yes, I want to follow Jesus. No, it's going to be the neighbor who says, hey, so you said that you read what that said and it caused you to live a certain way and it caused you to have hope in something that happened 2,000 years ago. Can you show me where that's at? Can you tell me why you do that? That's how we prove that the Bible is true. It's not by rehearsing all of the information or knowing all of the right answers or, or the five litmus test questions, which I think are important for us to know. But at the end of the day, how you live based on what you say you believe, that's what people notice. That's what people want. They want somebody that's real. They want somebody that's genuine. They desperately need someone to follow us. Pastor Tony posted an email and both on Facebook today. We have never lived in such a polarizing time. And yet, what a great opportunity for you and I to step across the road, to step across the aisle at work and introduce people to the person that we know is Jesus, to the Savior of the world, to the only absolute truth. Jesus himself proclaimed, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He said, I'm truth. This is what we ought to be following. So when people say, are you worried today? Are you nervous about the election? Are you stressed out about what's happening in the world today? Think of the old hymn. I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he is living no matter what men may say. He lives, he lives, Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives in my heart today. That is transformation. That is what the dynamic belief of the words of God do. If you read this and you walk away unchanged, you didn't read it. Amen.